Thank you, Marcy. Um, amazing to be back here so soon. I hope it doesn't mean you're desperate. Like I was the 10th call this time and you know you couldn't find anybody else. But anyhow, it's great to be here. Um, I do have to do one thing first. How many were here when I spoke earlier? Show of hands, okay. So I'm gonna do a pop quiz. We no longer call it the Sermon on the Mount, we call it the message, message on the Mount, okay? And if you don't know why, you're gonna have to go look at the podcast to see why I make that case. I continue to make that case. Uh, but we're going, gonna go in a different direction today. Um, what I'd like to do first is give you a little bit of a roadmap of where I'm going. Because, you know, if, if I knew you and I saw you walking down Hudson Street and I was driving and I pulled up and said, hey, hop in. We're gonna go on a trip. You would ask what question? Where are we going, are we going right? Because you're not sure you wanna go on this ride. Well, you, right now you don't really have much choice, although you could get up and walk out. But I think it's always helpful for me when I'm listening to someone, I like to kind of know up front, like where are we going? Especially this is a standalone message. It's not deeply integrated into a series. So what are we going to do in the next 20 to 30 minutes together? So I'm going to give you a little bit of the map. I'm going to tell three stories. One is from the New Testament, a person, if you read the Bible at all, you're very acquainted with. And then the other two stories come from my life. And the purpose of the stories is this. Um, I'm convinced uh, a life of ministry, of trying to follow Jesus, that to follow Jesus is to get to know him. And as we get to know him, we begin to be transformed. And the greatest evidence of that transformation is one thing, and the New Testament is so clear in this, and that is it's love. We grow in our capacity to love others. To love God, of course, because it starts there, but to love others. And in fact, I would say, and I think Chris, uh, my wife, came up with this phrase a number of years ago, and in our church, which is meeting at one o'clock today, just less than a mile from here, almost all homeless men and women, um, they need to know that they're deeply loved by God. Not a verse, not a doctrine, not a truth. They need to experience deeply the love of God. Because when you live loved, you live different. And that's the phrase, to live loved. I think the journey of spiritual formation is to learn to live loved. And when we are loved by God and we experience that love and we know it, it changes us. And we begin to love others and that's the transformation that Jesus intended to bring about through his kingdom. So we're gonna go, we're gonna unpack this by looking at one person where we see this transformation in the gospels. And then I'm gonna tell two stories and each, each of these last two stories, so this way you can track with me, there's two questions. And I hope a month from now, a year from now, if you remember, remember nothing else, you remember these two questions. They're questions, one that um, you ask yourself and another is a question that God is asking, I think every moment of every day. So that's where we're going to go. You ready to go with me? Um, let me also say thank you for that worship. It was amazing. And one of the things that I was hearing a theme within it was the name of Jesus, the beautiful name of Jesus, the voice. He speaks to us. We hear him. And so that's my prayer. And if, you know, obviously those of you that are here, my prayer is all of us would hear something from God today. You don't need to hear my voice. I hope my voice is a conduit for you to hear something from God. And for those that are, do we live stream this? Do we? Yes? Is that a yes? Okay. So if you're, if you're live streaming today, you're in your bathrobe, you got your cup of coffee or whatever it is you're drinking, uh, I want the same thing for you. I want you to hear God say something to you today. And if you're watching this later on a podcast, same thing. That's why we gather together, to experience God and to hear from God together. So here we go. So let's start, um, let's start with the person in the New Testament where we see this transformation of love actually happen in his life in the pages of the Gospels as we read them. Um, any of you ever have a nickname growing up? Yeah. Anybody ever have a nickname you didn't like? 
Okay, I had one I hated. I still am in therapy 60 years later trying to overcome this because my name is Craig and my brother who was older, and you know, older brothers are notorious for picking on their younger siblings. There were six kids in our family and I got picked on and all five ad adopted this nickname for me. And it was simply, well, it started with Craig the Egg and then just they called me Egg. Anybody want to be called Egg? And then my older brother told me that he chose that because my head was shaped like an egg. And I was so self-conscious that I would get my mom's mirror out of the bathroom and I would stand up and try to see. And sure enough, my head looked like it was shaped like an egg. And then my last name is Mays. And so when I got into school, they said Mays Mayonnaise. So Egg Mayonnaise was my name. And they would make jokes about egg salad sandwiches and all kinds of stuff. So, so this, is really, this is really rough for me. And I'm, I, I'm appreciating the laughter and the, the kind smiles and the support. And please don't call me Egg after, ever. All right, you got it? Thank you, Godfrey. I appreciate that. So there was a man in the New Testament, um, when we first encountered him, he had a nickname. And the nickname was actually given to him by Jesus. So there was a um, calling of the disciples. When Jesus named them, and this is from Mark 3, it says, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to, to them he gave the name Boanerges. Boanerges. That's a Greek word, doesn't mean anything to us, but translated it means sons of thunder. So James and John, we're going to focus on John. John was called by Jesus when he called him a son of thunder. Now that could be a cool name. I like it better than egg. I would have taken that hands down uh, when, I, when I was growing up. But here's the reason why he gave him that name. This is one illustration of the person when we first encountered John. So they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're going through Samaria. And the disciples go into a village ahead of Jesus to make preparations to stay for food, etc. And uh, they rejected them. They didn't want them there because they knew Jesus was going to Jerusalem. And there was so much hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans that they didn't want to honor any hospitality to Jesus and his disciples. So when they heard this, and we see this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, it says, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they ask Jesus now, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Now, come on, take this in for a moment. They wouldn't offer him hospitality, and they think the right thing to ask of Jesus is, because they now knew they had power to heal. You know, Jesus had sent them out to heal and to do good and to cast out demons, so they knew they had this power. So they said, do you want us to use this power to kill all of them for not being hospitable? Now, this is after, by the way, Jesus had given the message on the mount. And you guys went through a series on that, so you might know things like turn the other cheek, love your enemy, do those who don't do good to you, because then you'll be like your Father in heaven, be a peacemaker. So they heard, they sat there under that teaching, and now here they are a little bit later, when they get a little bit of rejection, they're not going to be hospitable, no coffees and bagels for you. The right reaction is to Ask for fire from heaven to come down and destroy all of them. Son of thunder. That's John. Now, later on, John got another nickname. And this is where we see the transformation. Do you know what his nickname was? In the Gospel of John, he writes it down five times. In describing an events, this is what he said. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that was his nickname. Man, I, I have been so challenged by that over the years because 
I would love for that to be rooted in my identity. That who am I? Well, I'm this, I'm that, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I'm whatever I am. But most of all, I am a disciple who Jesus loves. He saw himself in that way. The three years he traveled with Jesus, he learned from Jesus, he got nicknamed Son of, Son of Thunder. And of course, Jesus said, you know, you got it all wrong. He corrected him. But over time, he became transformed by his love. And so that's how he saw himself. And I tell you, if you have some time this week, it'll take you only about 20, 25 minutes. Read 1 John, five chapters. Because, and then write down or circle every time you see the word love. Because he became known through history now, church history, historians refer to John as a disciple whom Jesus loved. He was a disciple of love. He talked about love all the time. First John, he said things like, you know, if you see someone in need and you don't help them, how does the love of God dwell in you? Which is where we're going to go in a moment. So the idea for all of us, so this is what I want. If you're here investigating uh, Christianity, Jesus, I just want to say up front that the heart of what we believe is revealed through the gospel is that God is a God of love. John said God is love. He didn't say he loves. He said he is love. He's the essence of love. And so those that would claim to know Jesus, to be following Jesus, to be growing in our faith, the evidence of that over time should be more and more love, more and more capacity to love, especially those that are hard to love. That is the evidence of the gospel. That's the mission of God. That's how the kingdom grows. That's the point of all of this, is for all of us to be conduits of love in the world in which we live. So that's the first story. The first story is of John. It's an example of the journey that we are all to be on. And all of us, including me, every day should stand in the mirror, in front of the mirror at least once, and say, how am I loving? How did I love today at the end of the day? As we begin our day, God, how are you going to use me to love others? Because that's the light of the gospel. That's what draws people in. They will know you are Christians by the love you have, Jesus said. So that's the first story. All right, you tracking with me? We just went, went from Manhattan to Jersey City. Now we're going to head out toward Newark, okay? Not literally, of course. So the second one is um, about, I don't know, Chris, how many years ago it was, maybe five or six years ago. Well, Chris and I were called by God from Detroit area to New York City 15 years ago to plant a church. It's called Communitas. I was afraid to come to New York City because everything I knew about New York City I learned from movies and TV shows. So I learned certain things, survival skills, like don't go into Central Park because you never come out. <laughs> How many TV shows or movies? Um, don't go on the subway because you never come out. So I came dragging my feet a little bit um, and really God used Chris who knew a year before I did with certainty we were to come and so I, she patiently gave me a year to listen to God and we finally showed up here. And I became um, very aware over time that New York wasn't everything the movie said and it's a city we've grown to love. It feels home now. Um, can't imagine living anywhere else. People are friendly. They're nice. It's a big city. There's danger anywhere, right? But I would say um, I, I really then got my guard down where nothing ever felt dangerous and I never felt any threat anywhere ever and nothing ever happened and that was good until it happened. About three-quarters of a mile from here on Walker and Broadway, I was the CEO of the New York City Rescue Mission, knew the neighborhood, knew people. I went to Starbucks. It was July 3rd. It was a very hot day, not quite like Dallas, Marcy, but it was hot. And I, I got a Frappuccino, and I was walking back to my office, to the mission, and I crossed the street, and as I was walking, some arms came behind me and wrapped around me. Now, I, I know a lot of people in the neighborhood, even some of my homeless friends. This is a joke. 
It's kind of funny, except they shook me really hard and I dropped my frappuccino, so now I'm mad. And then I felt some hand going toward my wallet. So I realized I'm being mugged. So I, I pivoted um, against the wall and I kneeled down and what I should have done, my wife tells me, is I should have given my wallet. But instead I resisted and there were three guys. One of the guys was trying to get at me and I, and I was resisting and I had my hand against it and they're not gonna get my wallet. And then they started pounding on me. And um, they beat me up pretty good. Um, I had bruises, it got my first trip in an ambulance, uh, first trip to the police station, all of that. Um, but suddenly I'm in the, in the city's not safe and I'm under assault. And there were people, middle of the day, there were people walking by just totally ignoring it. There were construction workers across the street that put their tools down and I could see them looking at me while this was going on. Finally, a dude on a skateboard comes by and says, what are you guys doing? By the way, I have to tell you, um, I said the dumbest thing anyone's ever said while being mugged. I don't know where this came from. And you're gonna agree with me when I tell you, this is the dumbest thing anyone's ever said. Because eventually there were three guys on me and somehow I'm still pressing against the building, they can't get my wallet. And they're just saying, come on, old man, give it up. You know, just give it a wallet. And I wouldn't do it. And so at one point, I said to them, you guys are in so much trouble. <laughs> Would you agree that's the dumbest thing anyone's ever said? I don't know why they didn't just fall down laughing hysterically. <laughs> These guys are all about 20, you know, pretty in shape. So anyhow, the, the dude in the skateboard stopped and then the guy with a suitcase or with a briefcase and a suit, Wall Street guy stopped and they ran away and I held onto my wallet. Yeah, because I'm a lot tougher than I look. Now, I want to hit the pause button on that story because I'm going to tell you in a minute what it did to me and the healing that I needed from that. But I want to rewind um, and, and go back to something that happened about, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years before that. And this is the first question. This is a question um, that I want you to take out of today and ask yourself. Because if we're being transformed into love, people who love, this is the key question. So Chris and I were on our way to um, her parents for Thanksgiving. Uh, it's a big travel day. We only had about an hour, hour and a half to drive. Kids are in the minivan. We're in Detroit area at this time. We're driving down a main freeway and the traffic exiting onto another freeway got backed up. But we're going 65 miles an hour. And as we were approaching this intersection on the freeway, we could see the traffic was backed up. I, could, I, saw, I, I saw a distracted driver next to me who wasn't paying attention, and I knew what was going to happen. And right when we got up and that backed up, I'm going 65. This car slammed into totally stopped traffic going 60 miles an hour. And everything slowed down. It was like an explosion of sound and car hitting car hitting car. I'm on the brakes. I'm gripping the steering wheel. I think everybody in our car was screaming, my kids. It's very terrifying. The noise was, was immense. And I got up ahead of it, and, and now I'm almost stopped, and I pull off to the side, heart beating like this. And, you know, I'm thinking, what do I do? Well, I could just continue on. But there's something impulse in me said, no, you have to stop and see if you can help. So I got out of the car, and Chris said to me, don't do anything stupid, because she knows me really well. I didn't have a plan. I just got to go back and see. So I walked back a ways, and there were multiple car after car that was, you know, they were in trouble, they were messed up. But I got to one car and I'm walking alongside and it's really, it's an SUV and there's a woman, blonde hair, I can still see it in my mind, so I slumped over the steering wheel, passed out. Airbag went off, whatever. And I look and there's um, some flames under the car. 
So I don't know if the movie's got it right either. Can this car explode? I'm not sure if that can happen or not. So I'm, I'm about from here to the screen right there. I'm about that far away. All the traffic, all the lanes are stopped. It's carnage or smoke. Um, the, my family said that when I left, I walked into the smoke, and they, they couldn't see anything, what was going on. So I'm just out there somewhere. And I'm standing there feeling like I'm in danger, and then something remarkable happened. That I have, My daughter was in the car at the time, probably 10 or 11 years old, blonde hair. There was a voice that said, that's your daughter. It changed everything. When that person went from a stranger, I don't know, and not sure I, I want to be at risk, to my daughter, nothing's going to stop me. And it's hard to describe this, but it, it was clearly not my daughter, but everything in my heart and mind said, that's Megan. You got to go get her. And so, by the way, this isn't about bravery or courage. I'm not up here boasting. I was scared to death, but that's my daughter. And so I made a beeline to the door. I pulled it open, and right when I got there, there was another guy there. We got the belt off and pulled her out and carried her around the side off to the shoulder and laid her down, and my back is to the car, and I got just down like this in just an explosion. I turned around. It was all in flames. She's not out of the car. She's dead. But it's not she's dead, it's my daughter. Everything in that moment felt like that's who I had rescued. I had rescued someone I loved and cared about deeply. It wasn't a stranger. So the ambulance has come, everything. My family's still up in the car, and then I walked back to the car and appeared out of the smoke. By the way, I like to picture I'm like, I don't know, Clint Eastwood or someone. <laughs> I, I see myself walking in slow motion through there, you know, the hero of the story. <laughs> but when I got to... Chris's parents, um, I couldn't relax or settle down, and I, I couldn't sleep. Like, the intensity, the adrenaline of that, what I witnessed is playing in my mind. And then, I'm not a person that ever claims to have visions, but I had a vision. 100%, God showed me something. Here's what he showed me. Because I'm not a, really a creative person. I wouldn't make up a story like this, but I saw, I saw a man sitting um, or standing in his living, or living room kitchen area, and the tea... The TV was on, and he was watching some show, and he had two places set at his table for lunch or dinner. And he kept looking at his watch. I, I could see this very clearly. And he kept looking at his watch and watching TV and looking at his watch, and there's food ready, and there's, there's two place settings. And then suddenly the TV he was watching said, we, we go to a breaking story. Uh, there's been a bad accident. And I'm looking at this TV, and it's the accident I've gone by. And... The helicopter zoomed in, and you could see the SUV and a man standing about 10 feet away, looking in the window at the blonde. So this dad is looking in the TV over my shoulder into the car. He realizes that's his daughter. If he could talk to me, what would he say to me about his daughter? What would he be willing to give up if I would go take the chance and rescue his daughter? Anything and everything. He would beg me. He would sell his house, car, everything he owns for his daughter. So there I am, not moving, standing, looking, and the dad has seen this whole scene unfold. And God said to me, that's what I see every day. They're all my children. Whatever risk, whatever need, whatever heartache, whatever hurt, whatever pain, whatever disappointment, whatever danger they're in, I see it all. And the only way I can help is if someone who 
knows me and is following me will take a step. His dad could have prayed all he wanted for his God help my daughter, but God's not likely to just snap his fingers and she's out of the car. He needs to know, is there someone that will go and pull her out of the car? You know, that was, that was overwhelming for me to realize that because I said, is it really possible that God, how I felt when I, when I felt that woman in there was my daughter, when I felt that in my heart, the pain, the urgency, that God carries that for every single person. That's his love. That's his level of care. And so I've, I've called this, this episode of my life two things. It's the blonde in the car that reminds me. And it's the idea that God is looking over my shoulder. Whatever I see, he sees. He sees it differently than I see it. So the question for us to take away, I'm asking you to take away, is to ask yourself, who do I see? Whoever that person is around you, do you see some stranger, nameless stranger, a number, a statistic, or do you see a son or a daughter or a mother or father or a close friend? Do you see someone that God deeply loves? Because his love will only be experienced by that person through us if we act, if we step into it. So the question is, who do I see? Which, by the way, if we had more time, and if I go too long, you won't invite me back. I have one more question for you, but... Um, the Good Samaritan story in Luke 10. A man left half dead, meaning he's going to die if nobody intervenes. A priest and Levite go by, and then a Samaritan. And in all three cases, the language is exactly the same. The priest came by, he saw, and he passed by. The Levite came and he saw, and he passed by. The Samaritan came, he saw. He felt compassion, and he went to him. All three saw, but who did they see? What did they see? And you know, when, when you, you love someone, don't you begin to love what they love? I mean, isn't that the nature of love? You know, the crazy things we do for love, someone may hate, that, we're, that we love or that we're in a relationship with that we love, we'll do all kinds of things and sacrifices because we love them and we want, we want them to have joy and happiness. And so we, we make these decisions. So if that's the case in relationship, think about if we love God, what will, what will we love? How will we love? We'll love everyone. We'll love radically. We'll love sacrificially. We'll take steps toward a burning car because that's his daughter. And that becomes my daughter. And that's the thing God taught me through that experience a while ago, and it's been germinating in me for year after year, decades really now, in terms of how I want to live my life. I want to ask myself every day, who do I see? You know, well, the, the church that Chris leads and that we minister that, you know, today, Communitas, will be there. Some of these people are very hard to love. They're unreasonable. They get mad over nothing. Chris and I spent an hour and a half at dinner last night talking about some of the specifics of name, names of people we're working with that are so hard. No excuses. God's love is perfect. It's extravagant. So who do I see? That's a great question for life to ask every day. In this city where we're around people all the time, the person in the subway that rushed past you to get the chair, I, it bugs me because, you know, I'm in my 60s and I got teenagers that will beat me to that chair, that seat. Come on, don't, don't I look like I need a seat? I can develop an attitude about stuff like that. Like, who do I see? I don't know their story. I don't know anything about them, and I'm judging them. So that's the question. First question. Now, back to my mugging story. 
So after I had that experience, about a, a week later, I, was, uh, I had a co-ed softball team playing in Central Park from the Bowery Mission, uh, the staff. And I went to a game, and I came back, and I was going inside my apartment, and somebody running by grabbed my backpack with all my stuff in it and took off down the street. It's not a mugging in a sense, but now after f almost 15 years here, in two weeks apart, I have two incidents of a violation. And I got my bag back, by the way. I won't tell you about that. Yeah, I went, I went ran after the guy. You know, he's half my age. I, I ran past him and beat him up and got known. <laughs> you know, this is the thing I love about New York, by the way, is that it's such a community. And we lived on that street ten, almost 10 years, and the guy that ran the barber shop, well, his son was a barber, and he was like a uh, fixed uh, shoes and watches and stuff. Got to build a relationship with him, and he's, I don't know how old he is, but he looks older than me, and um, tall and uh, kind of thin, and he saw it happen. So he got out on the sidewalk in front of the guy and stopped him and got my bag for me. So two muggings, I got all my stuff. But what happened to me is I became afraid. Some of it was maybe wisdom. Like I started on subway platforms, I would be against the back wall waiting for the train so nobody could come up behind me. I was um, startled easily on the sidewalk. I would see people coming and I would tense up and I don't want to live this way, but it went on all summer long. So in the fall, um, most of the staff at the Bowery um, didn't know this, that this had happened to me. It was the summertime. And so I decided that we had a staff chapel um, every Tuesday morning and I was going to share to the staff. So I decided to share my story and it's a story in process because I'm living in too much fear and anxiety. So I sat in my office late uh, Monday evening, finished up what I was going to share, and then I went to bed. I got up in the morning, but before, actually before I left the office, the last thing I wrote was, um, I don't want to live in fear. I don't want to live in fear. So I go in the next day, um, I, I mean, rather I leave the office, and I'm walking to my apartment. It's only a few blocks from where my office was, and as I'm walking down the street, um, tense, it's crowded. I, I saw a man, I glanced at a man coming up, and I've been in, working in this field for a lot of years, and this person looked like a threat to me. I don't know how I judged it, it just looked like a threat. So I'm, I move aside a little bit, he's a big man, he's walking, and he gets up past me, and then I realize he's, look, he's staring at me. Like he's turned his head, I can see it. What do I do? So I actually slowed down and I stared and looked at him. And this is the first thing that came out of his mouth. And I'm still shocked by it. He said, Thanks for not being afraid of me. I had just written down, five minutes earlier, I don't want to live in fear. And this man says to me, thank you for not being afraid of me. So I said, well, why would I be afraid of you? He said, I don't know. He said, I'm, I'm in trouble right now. And I need some help, and no one will talk to me. So I said, well, what's your trouble? And he said, well... I'm, I was released from prison a few months ago. I'm in this program downtown, and I have to get back to this halfway house by a certain time, or they're gonna, I'm, they're gonna take me back. And I lost my ticket. I lost everything. I have no, nothing except this ID from my program. And I've been walking. He said, about four miles all the way from Battery Park, and this is now up Midtown. He said, I've been asking people for help. I just need money to get the bus ticket to get back. And no one would talk to me. Everybody's afraid of me. Now, I know why he asked that question, because God told him to ask that question, because that's what I needed. So we have this conversation there. He showed me his ID, talked about his program, and he said, 
I've been praying constantly as I walked for this last hour plus, almost two hours walking to get to Grand Central Station. I've been praying that God would bring someone that would help me. What do you need? He said, well, it's this and this ticket. So I went Chase Bank right there, got the cash. And he's able to get to Grand Central. So here's another vision. So maybe I've had two visions in my life because as I was processing this and went home and I was sitting here thinking about this, and by the way, we hugged and cried together. It's amazing about 10-minute moment together. I was crying because I felt God healing me in that moment, saying you don't have to live in fear. But the more important part of the story, and this comes to the second question. This is a question that I believe God, God is asking. So when Richard started his walk, realizing he had no way to get to Grand Central, and he started asking people, hey, could you spare a few dollars? And all of us get asked that every day in New York City, right? We can't just be dispensing money, so I'm not judging anyone. But he walked for over an hour and didn't get a penny. But he was praying. He said, I kept praying the whole time. Does God hear that prayer? Yes. So I have this vision. I can see it like a drone flying over lower Manhattan, all the way up to Midtown, watching Richard as he's walking and asking people. Only this is God's point of view. He's watching this, and he hears a prayer, and then he asks this question. Who do I have? Who do I have that will step into this? Who do I have that will listen to his story? Who do I have that will be generous to help him? Who do I have that will be willing to believe his story? Who do I have who will be willing to slow down and stop in their busyness to encounter this person who's asking me for help? Because I want to help him, but I have to have someone that I can use to help him. Who do I have? And I can see him scouring, watching. Oh, now we're up to uh, Canal Street. Now we're up to Houston Street. Now we're up to nobody, nobody, nobody. And then he sees a man who has been living in fear, who just took up his pen and wrote, I don't want to live in fear. And God says, okay, him. I can count on him. He'll respond. And I'm going to help two people, God I believe, was saying to himself, I'm going to help Richard, and I'm going to help Craig. Who do I have? That's the only way this works, I've come to believe. If we are to be the messengers of God's love, his care, his provision for people, for their souls, for their bodies, for their life, if we are to be agents of love, then we have to be asking these two questions. First of all, is my heart become hardened or not? Is it soft? Who do I see? Do I see someone as someone who matters not only to God, but therefore to me because I'm learning to grow in love? And then the other question to realize that every day as prayers are going up to God, as needs are being manifest, that God wants to respond to and bring help, he ha he's asking the question, who do I have? Who do I have in proximity that can be the answer to this prayer? They'll be willing to step into something maybe messy or, or um, challenging or stressful or whatever because that's the only way Jesus kingdom grows is through people who are growing in love the love of God they're living loved and that love now they become conduits and as I ask the question every day who do I see and then as I hear God asking the question who do I have 
If you're following Jesus, don't you want to be that person as God is watching the situation unfold and, he, and this person's praying, prayers are being offered up, don't you want God's eyes to fall on you and to say, oh, good. Joe's here. Jill's here. Brian, Sarah, Marcy, God, Godfrey, Chris, Craig. When he sees you, he goes, oh, good, we've got this covered. Because that's the goal of discipleship. That's the goal of spiritual formation is that we, we are being formed into men and women who are not just living our individual lives, but we're part of the bigger story of God that's unfolding in our city and really around the world. So I'm going to just, um, as I pray, to close this and invite the band to come. I think the band's coming. Um, to um, ask you to think of these two questions. Just frame your day that way. That's, that's when I wake up in the morning, I have some prayers I pray every morning, and then I say, okay, God, help me to see today what you see, who you see, how you see. And then help me to be the person available to step into whatever it is you want me to step into. And I have to tell you, that's, that's a great adventure, to live your life that way, because every moment counts. I have this little uh, bracelet I wear that says, I'm either now here or nowhere. A remi- uh, just a reminder for me every day to be engaged, present where I am. Here this morning, as Chris and I walk over to Communitas, whatever we do, as I go to the airport tomorrow, to always be mindful that God is at work. So God, just uh, take these thoughts today, um, these truths from your word, the reality of your love, just drive it into our hearts. I pray even as we worship um, next in these moments that the words we sing, the words we hear, would draw us closer to you and give us a clear vision of your love. And I pray also that um, I would take these questions today and live in them. Who do I see? And your question, who do I have? I pray this in your name. Amen.